you go to the, there's a million seller book and you go to the store and you buy it and you get it home and you open it up and you go, hold it. I already know all these words. And music is the same way. It's just, if you play, you know, a G chord and a C chord and a D chord, you've played you know, all the notes in the G scale and you already know them. So come on. <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Keith Billick here with the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for the first ever replay episode. And there's a few reasons I'm doing this, not the least of which has been I'm really busy right now. And uh, it, it's all good. I'm not trying to get uh, sympathy or anything, but I've been doing stuff like I actually just got off of the video call for our monthly VIP lounge where I have a video chat with all of my lovely, intelligent Patreon supporters. And uh, that's always a great time seeing all of you there. Um, and that reminds me, we have a Patreon supporter of the show to thank. And that today is Nathan Lazikas. Nathan is a Hall of Honor patron, which is the highest honor bestowed upon a civilian podcast listener. He's originally from Buffalo, New York, but now is picking up a storm over in Denver, Colorado. So if you're in that area and you run into Nathan, tell him hi for me and tell him thank you for supporting the Picky Fingers podcast. It really does help and I really do appreciate it. To become a supporter of the show yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and for just a few dollars a month, you can become an official supporter of the show. You can get invited to those VIP, very important picker video meetups and all sorts of other prizes along with the satisfaction of knowing that you are helping keep the top banjo podcast in the world pumping through those uh, earbuds or however you're listening to it right now in the car, whatever. We want to keep it coming, folks. So thank you so much for everyone's support who go to, once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Now, I mentioned that I'm busy with a lot of things, and that is one reason why I'm choosing to replay an episode. I am actually preparing for a few uh, things right now, such as this weekend, I will be running sound over at Midwest Banjo Camp, which uh, if you head over to MidwestBanjoCamp.com, you will see the very impressive list of instructors. I will be there, so if you happen to be there, come say hi. And if you ask nicely, I'll probably even have a Picky Fingers official sticker for you. And even though this episode is a replay, I am planning all sorts of very cool interviews coming up in the near future. And I'm not going to spoil it, but I can't wait to have you hear them. So stay tuned for that. featured guest is the great Alan Mundy. So I keep mentioning that this is a replay episode, and what do I mean by that? This is actually a, uh, a compilation of episodes 6 and 7, which aired, or, or I rather, I actually did the interviews about five years ago now, and the subject of the interview is Alan Mundy. So there's a lot of things happening here. For one thing, Alan is one of my all-time favorite players, so I always love a chance to 
you know, re-put out there his uh, stories and some, some of the advice that you can hear in his own words, which is really, really great. And I really loved revisiting this. Another thing is, this is this was kind of a big deal to me. When I was initially doing this podcast, Alan was kind of the first big name player that I was able to secure as far as being a guest on the show. And that really gave me and this show quite a bit of credibility going forward. And I think without people like him who initially said yes to interviews with some guy who they didn't know, uh, I probably wouldn't be here right now doing this episode. So I'm a huge fan of Alan's. He has meant a lot to me as a player and a lot to me uh, in terms of building the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast. And what better way to express that than uh, putting this back out into the world for you all to uh, discover for the first time or perhaps rediscover as I am doing. So here we go. Give a warm Picky Fingers welcome to the great Alan Mundy. from Norman, Oklahoma, and I've got two older brothers and a younger sister. And uh, early on, my actually, my oldest brother played the accordion for a length of time, and then my younger sister got into it, and uh, the lady, this is back in the day when the teacher would actually come to the house. The door-to-door salesman, yeah. Right, and she was a college student, the teacher was. Uh, Nancy Carter was her name, and she was the former either runner-up or Miss Oklahoma or something. But she would come over and give my sister lessons. And then after my sister took a lesson, then she would show me what she learned. So I would kind of fool around on the accordion some. So I had this interest in music, and we had my parents had recordings around the house. And this is back in the day when an album was a collection of several 78s. Okay, more you of know. a compilation style. Well, it it was a... You know, you would have uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or something, and it would take six seventy-eights, yeah, uh, or more probably to do something like that. So we had a those, and I would listen to Strauss waltzes and those sorts of things, and uh, maybe a recording of a musical, My Fair Lady, or some such, and uh, would listen to those. And then my oldest brother came home from the Navy with a guitar and a record on how to play it, Pete Seeger's Folk Singer's Guitar Guide. All right. And uh, I would listen to that. You know, it was a recording, and there it was. And, man, I really liked the sound of the guitar, so I would got his guitar and would work on it. He went off to college and uh, got married and one thing and another, and I sort of took over the guitar. Inherited it, yeah. Played the guitar, got a better one. Uh, I remember I bought it... Uh, I'm like I said, I'm from Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, all my dad's connections were folks that had been in World War II and through the American Legion. So he had a friend that had a TV repair shop that sold guitars. So I bought my first guitar, which was a K. I think it was forty dollars, and I paid out five dollars a month. I signed a little white card, yeah, uh, and would go down every month and pay my five dollars until it got paid off. A little K K archtop. Right. 
So I was probably 14 or so. Yeah, that's time. what I was just going to ask. So you, so you were playing, uh, or not banjo yet, but you have played banjo and accordion in your life. Uh, yeah, all you need to yeah. do is add some bagpipes and right, you'd just right. be the most hated musician yeah, of all time. Give me a, some spoons. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so, right. Uh, so it sounds like mostly classical music is what you were exposed to? That was but, early on, but you know, in the late 50s, uh, was a big folk music revival. Sure. And so they were, all these groups were on TV playing guitar, and uh, I liked the sound of that. And among that was a banjo, you know. And, and uh, actually, I went down to buy a record of Pete Seeger because I thought he was a guitar player, and it turns out he's a banjo player also. Yeah. Uh, so I liked that, and so I got a banjo. Was it a long neck like Seeger played? Oh, or gosh, you... no, no. Okay. I couldn't afford anything that like that. It was uh, the cheapest, I should say the least expensive banjo that Vega made, which was called a Vega Ranger. Okay. And I don't have that banjo, but I've got one just like it that a friend of mine gave me. So I have a Vega Ranger at home and uh, learned to play on that. I got the Pete Seeger book on how to play the banjo. And uh, I had ordered my banjo and I had the book and I would read the book. I'd read it four or five times by the time I got the banjo, and so in a sense, I almost the first time I played banjo, I could play it because I had read the book. I played guitar a little bit. You were uh, ready for it. I was ready, yeah, and yeah, I would practice cool. that basic strum on the side of my desk at school, and uh, so I was ready for it. And literally, the first time I picked up my banjo, got it in tune, uh, I, I played something on it. I it mean, actually sounded okay. Yeah, it did to me. It was a real thrill. I loved it. And uh, so I sort of switched from the being thinking of myself as a guitar player to wanting to play the banjo mostly. And so I started searching out people locally that knew how to play, and I found a few. Uh, and a friend of mine had given me, his name's Gary McNabb. I haven't seen him in many, many, many years. But he gave me for Christmas the Flat and Scruggs Foggy Mountain Banjo record. Uh-oh. And then it was all over. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's it's was it's real interesting, and I think Pete Wernick mentioned this uh, that you hear that playing, and I truly thought it was miraculous. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine how it was done, but somehow in all that, I had a sense that I could do it. You know that people did that. Yeah. And so I started searching out people that knew how to do that sort of thing, and finally found a a guy in Oklahoma City named Gary Price, who's a name that uh, some banjo players might know because he makes a tailpiece sure. called the Price, and he makes a Price tailpiece, and he makes a a case and has been involved in the music for a long time. Again, I haven't seen him in many, many years, but I took, I went, my dad worked in Oklahoma City on, back in the olden days, uh, people worked till Saturday noon, Okay. And so he had to work on Saturday morning, so I would ride to Oklahoma City with him, and uh, he would drop me off at Gary Price's, and I'd take a lesson, then he'd come back and pick me up. So was Gary McNabb, he he was not a bluegrass-style player? No, no. He was just a friend that knew I played banjo and and knew this was banjo playing, and so he gave it to me. He wasn't, uh, you know, 
especially into the music or anything. He was just a friend. Yeah. So once you met Gary Price, though, he he had a three-finger style and could do some of the Scruggs? Oh, right. Definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, and in Oklahoma City, the Dillards used to are from Missouri, and the first time they went to California, they came through Oklahoma City and played a place called the Budai. Uh, and I didn't see them there, but uh, Gary had seen them there, so he was familiar with the Dillards. And <clears throat> then I, you know, in my playings, like I say, I found Gary, and he showed me, I think, a couple of lessons. And it was, a, once again, it was kind of all I needed in, the, in a sense because he showed me how the role worked and how yeah. roles are organized. And uh, so I sort of got it. You know, in that playing that Pete Seeger style, you know, the, just the basic strum, uh, it's too bad that people, banjo players uh, who are just beginning uh, and want to play in the three-finger bluegrass way, I know you're itching to do it, but in some ways it's, it's really instructive and revealing uh, to play in that Pete Seeger way uh, because right away what it does is it puts the melody and the rhythm and the harmony all together in one package that's really understandable. You can play it for people. It sounds good. It sounds like what it is. Uh, and where bluegrass is, the three-fingered roll style sort of takes that all apart and does it in little bits and pieces to where it's you need... Uh, that's why it works so well in a band is because it you need that context of a band to kind of explain what you're doing uh, and stripping it down to the Seeger style might reduce the temptation to just play as fast as you can all the time at the expense of maybe accenting the melody notes or with proper timing, right? all that kind of thing right. that a lot of people do. Well, you know, if uh, in a sense what's happening in the Scruggs style, and I, I've got my picks on right now, but uh, if, you do, if you wanted to do this... You know, what you're doing is you're, you have sort of an emphasis on this. Yeah. And then you're playing this, the strum, as a chord. Uh, but when, uh, when you do the picking, you take that all apart. And rather than having the chord sort of in a, in a vertical line, uh, if it were on a musical staff, you take that, the same exact notes and you just lay them out. You know, you take them apart. So now, mm -hmm. and you would do this. And it's all the same notes, and you're doing the same thing in a sense. But rather than... You're doing... Yeah. So uh, it really helps you get a, founded in what you're doing to where when you start taking it all apart, you can still, still hear it as a whole. There are a lot more things that can go wrong right away when you, <laughs> right. when you take it all apart. Right. And the other thing about the... the I'm not in very good tune here. The other thing about the Scrug style is uh, it's like a movie, a film, that a film is just a bunch of stills. Sure. And then you get it going fast enough and it, it only simulates movement. Right. It's not really movement. It's yeah. just a bunch of it's stills. It's perceived, right. Well, and bluegrass is, banjo is kind of the same way. It's just a bunch of notes 
single notes until you get it going fast enough to where it, it sounds like it's supposed to sound. And that's sort of a challenge. That's a really cool analogy. I've never heard that before, but that makes a lot of sense. People can't hear it when they try to play slow. This isn't, I know. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing at all. But um. You know, it's, all, it's like this. What did you learn at camp this week? And, well, I learned this. You know, and you yeah. go, what is that? Doesn't sound go, like well, anything. it's Foggy Mountain right now. Can't <laughs> of you hear it? Yeah. Those are the right notes. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're playing all the right notes. It's just you have to get it up to a tempo to where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that is a challenge for sure. Right. But once it's up to tempo, if you don't have that foundation that maybe the Seeger style or solid timing gives you. Then, right, um, right. And also that's the movie is out of focus or I don't know what the yeah, analogy yeah. would be for e that. Exactly. And the other thing is in the Seeger style, you have a real definite place where the melody is. You know, the in the book it was And that's almost literally from the Pete Seeger book. And so it gives you a sense of melody. And a lot of times people will ask, when you're playing in the Scruggs style, do you emphasize uh, the melody, you know, as you play? Are you playing the melody notes harder or louder? And in a, I would guess the answer is probably yes. But it's not from a conscience, conscious uh, sense of, oh, play harder with the index finger, play harder with the middle finger, because it all goes by so fast. Yeah, you couldn't possibly think of all that. So what you, you have, if you do the Pete Seeger thing first, is you have a real sense of the melody and of the idea of, you know, where it is and what you want to hear to where and your brain and your ear and your muscles all sort of take over and you just sort of do it because that's what you're wanting to hear. It's more like singing than actually picking out all these 16th notes. Exactly, exactly. And you and you develop a sense of, in a way, of which notes are the important notes, which notes are the filler, rhythmic filler notes. And it's, it turns out to be more of a feel or a touch than an actual sort of conscious... Loud, soft, soft, loud, yeah, loud, loud. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. And because it can change, you know, just in one finger, one from one finger to the next, sure. the next note in the sequence, they both, may, they both may be the melody and then the rest are not, or maybe it's one and then none of the others are till the next measure. So, you know, it's just you develop this sensibility about it and it comes from playing a lot and listening a lot. And playing along, I think that's one thing. I don't know if people do it as much as you used to, but, you know, I've listened to a lot of the very fine banjo players, and one comes to mind is Alan Shelton. Sure. You know, uh, listening to recordings and uh, playing along, and uh, a lot of my learning was spent playing along with records. Yeah. And uh, I know people say, well, they're too fast and I, or I don't know it or this or that or the other. Well, I didn't either, you know. And I remember the first thing, this is the first thing I could play along with. And it was this. 
And that was it. Yep. That was all I could do. But that's a big breakthrough. But every time it would come around, <laughs> I would ready. do that. <laughs> you know? And uh, Were you slowing down records to, to learn them, or did you just have uh, to be really patient? No, eventually I did. Somebody told me, you know, that you can turn on the turntables. You know, you had uh, 33 and a third, and then you mm -hmm. had 16, I think, was the other Oh, you actually speed. had a setting for 16. Yeah. I've so, heard people put a nickel on the stylus, too. Is that a thing that you tried? I, the only reason I would have done that is because my it would skip. Oh, yeah. And right. you would put... A, keep it in place. Yeah, just to keep it in place. Of course, it, and I remember when I got a the record player I had would always skip on the first track, you know, about halfway into the first track. Mm -hmm. And I just let it do it and, and would listen to And I finally got a record player that didn't do that and it was like having a whole new record collection because <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the first half of all the first tracks on both sides. Oh my God, that's funny. Oh, yeah. it is. Dis it was... Rediscovering everything. Right, right. And, uh, but I would slow them down. Of course, at the time, that would cut the pitch, you know, down. On an octave. An octave. Yeah. But still, you know, especially Earl Scruggs, it was so good to listen to him at that speed, you know, because it allowed you to kind of, I won't say hear in between the notes necessarily, but you could hear just little slides yeah, and finger noises that... Right, to, and yeah. just the precision of the roll mm -hmm. and the emphasis of maybe a hammer-on or a slide or something, just a lot, a lot of things are revealed when you slow them down. And it would be like, you know, looking at a big Rembrandt, you know, wall-sized Rembrandt, and you just go over and look at one little detail of yeah. it, and you wow, wow, look at that boot. Right, through you a know. magnifying glass or yeah, something. Yeah, and, and he's even got the laces on it. You know, just, and you see a lot of things and hear a lot of things that you wouldn't hear otherwise. And nowadays, digitally, you can slow things down and keep the the pitch the same, which is good. But I kind of enjoyed, you know, the grumble. It's it's what you had, so you, you made the most of it, oh, it sounds yeah. like. I had a, a faculty, I taught at South Plains College mm -hmm. that had a music program, and our director, he would always go over and talk to, uh, you know, being a community college, they took in a lot of what they called pioneer students, which were the maybe in a family, the first student to ever go to college. Oh, yeah. And so they would offer a lot, you know, make sure they had a lot of help. And he would go over and talk to them about just desire and ambition. And his ambition was to play guitar. And uh, he was even a little older than I am. And he would do this thing where he had a little record player and he would put it on the floor and he would take his shoe and sock off and he would put his foot on the record. <laughs> and drag it with his drag, toe. <laughs> yeah, just to hear. I mean, and that's, you know, when you want something, those are the kinds of things you figure out yeah. to do to get it. Necessity, the mother of invention. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, now we have the amazing slow downer and all this yep. sort of stuff. And uh, so it's when you want to do it, and it, it really gets to you. You know, it, it does. I had a friend who wanted to play, learn to play the banjo a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Only a little bit? Yeah, just a little bit. She was a docent on a, a barge, uh, the C&O Canal in Washington, D.C., and she thought it'd be cool if she could play, you know, the banjo for a couple of tunes just to 
because they dress. It was uh, entertain folks, and it was hauled down the river by mules. Oh, or down the canal, I should say. And so they dressed up in in costume of the time, and she thought it'd be cool to play a banjo yeah. for the crowd. And I said, "Well, uh, I'll help you learn, but I, I'll warn you." There is no playing a little. I said, you'll get a banjo, and that'll be good enough, and you'll play, and you'll learn something, and you'll go, you know, I think I could play better if I had a little better banjo, and you're going to be hanging around music stores and stopping by on the way home and looking to see what they've got. And you were right? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is... 20, 30 years ago, and she's still playing, going to jam sessions. That's great. You know, yeah, it was real cool how it worked out, but it, it's not something you can take lightly. No, you once once you find it, you're all in once you've been bitten. Yeah, you know, my wife is a quilter, and there's quilts are the same way, you know, you get in and you just want to do a little bit, and then you find there's this whole world yeah. of quilting and art, the art of it all, and uh, the history of it, and and the material and the machines and, yeah. you know, it's pretty soon you're... feels good to be learning things oh, and gosh, yeah. seeing your progress. Right, right, right. And it's, you know, it's a good way to spend your life, I think, you mm-hmm. know, involved in those sorts of things. So it sounds like, obviously, you were learning a lot of that Earl Scruggs stuff. A, a big part of your playing that influenced me is your melodic playing. When did you and how did you figure that stuff out? Well, uh like everybody else, you know, I'm in my home listening to the radio and I hear this, there's a folk music show and they play this recording of Bill Monroe doing Devil's Dream. Mm-hmm. And it's Bill Keith on the banjo I learned and he's got this way of, and you know, and I, tr- I came, I found a note or two of it, but I didn't, I tried to make everything work in in the roles I could conceive of at the time and it wasn't working. And I can't remember where it was that somebody said, oh, you do it like this, or you, you know, it's this thing. Uh, but anyway, it was through Bill Keith for sure. And uh, I had a, the guy that really, 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 really taught me to play and showed me how to play and that I really admired was a guy named Eddie Shelton, who, uh, there's a famous banjo player named Alan Shelton, mm-hmm. no relation. No relation, okay. And, uh, Eddie uh, worked for, uh, what was it called? I forget, but it was a cash register company. And uh, he traveled over the country some good bit, and, and he played real well. And I met him through Byron Berline, who is a fiddle player at the, sure. that I met at the University of Oklahoma. He and I are great buddies and uh, hung together our time together at OU. And he introduced me to Eddie Shelton, and uh, who was living in Oklahoma City, uh, working for this cash register company as a repair person. And uh, he had, between he and Byron, they had back then reel-to-reel tapes of some live Bill Monroe shows that had Mm -hmm. Bill Keith as a banjo, which was a real eye-opener. And he sort of clued me in as to how all that was working. So So what did he show you, just the, the basic, like a scale I don't even shape th- pattern I, or I don't even think it was a scale. I mean, he didn't say here's here's a way to play the scale doing that. He just went right straight to the tune, you know. You know and so on mm-hmm. and said put your fingers here and do this and there, there it is. And sort of you 
you know, you figure out, well, that's it's just scales, you know, right. ultimately. And if you can play scales in that fashion, then melodies are just different jumblings of the uh, of the scale. Different combinations, right. right. Yeah. You know, and I always, this is sort of stupid in a way, but I people never think of this. But, you know, if you if music, you take the scale and you just, all, a lot of the music we hear just different combinations of scales yeah. and spaces. And you go, well, language is the same thing. It's these letters jump, clump together and then spaces in between them. And so that music is kind of a like language in that way. Very much so. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if people ever do this, but I think it's funny to think about is you go to, the, there's a million seller book and you go to the store and you buy it and you get it home and you open it up and you go, hold it. I already know all these words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and music is the same way. It's just, if you play, you know, a G chord and a C chord and a D chord, you've played you know, all the notes yep. in the G scale and you already, you already know them. So come on. Yep. <laughs> so it's sort of like that. You just sort of start discovering things and uh, we would... Eddie and I would, I'd go up and visit him and literally sit out in his garage and go to sleep out there, you know, all night, wake up the next morning and start playing again. And it, you know, it, in music, it sort of helps if you have a situation where you can do that for some part of your time as to where you're just totally, totally into it. Yeah. How much were you practicing back then? Well, I have no idea. I always say, you should ask my mother. <laughs> Were you, so that's how you learned the melodic style. As far as your bluegrass playing was concerned, were you coming along pretty well by then? Were you playing well, out in bands? Or? Yeah, I tried to find anybody I could find to play with, you know, and, and being from Norman, Oklahoma, that's not exactly the center of it all, but there was a lot of music, but it was a lot of different kinds. And there was a lot of uh, Western, Western swing. And I played, uh, I used to go play with a, uh, a lady who was a hairdresser, she played piano, and a guy at the church I went to who had a, a cleaners, worked at a cleaners, and he played fiddle, and we would do bubbles in my beer, you know, in the key of F, and I would try to clomp along and play as whatever it is I could think of to play, and so I'd play with them, and I played, uh, there was a really fine uh, guitar player that I knew because I bought my banjo from him because he had a music store named Mike Ritchie who's went on to become a character named Slim Ritchie and a very, very fine jazz uh -huh. guitarist. And uh, I'd hang out at his store there in Norman and learned a lot just from people passing through. There was a, I played at a little place while I was in college called Westtown. There was a barbecue beer joint but it was run by a guy named Max Salathiel. No, it wasn't Max. It was Doyle Salathiel. Mm -hmm. And Doyle had been a jazz guitarist in New York City at the time, you know, that Tal Farlow was there and Jimmy Rainey and all these famous players. But he, you know, came back to Oklahoma and his brother was a, had a Western swing band called, changed his name to uh, Lindsey, Merle Lindsey. And I forget what his band was called, but I would play at this West Town and Merle, this Doyle Salathiel would play some. And he would always team me with some Western swing guy that would do, you know, 
six-pack to go, give me a six-pack to go. And so we'd do just country music, guy on the guitar and me on the banjo. And he never said, you know, banjo doesn't go with this. Back then, you just jumped in there and tried to play what you could. Yeah, and there wasn't too many examples of what you should have even been doing. You could you could try to fit your roll patterns in there somewhere if you right, want. But right, uh, or chord stuff. Or, right. uh, you know, Alan Shelton had a few little sort of steel guitar kinds of things that he did on the banjo, and I would emulate some of those and try to make things work. And And that's when I started getting into, you know, trying to do... You know, sort of chordal chord melody, chord melody kinds of things, and so it all kind of goes together. But I always wanted to do the bluegrass stuff. I mean, that's what I liked and would have loved to have played. And there were some players around that did that, and I would do my best to, uh, you know, copy the solos on the recordings as much as I could. Which is another important thing, you know, in a in development is trying to copy solos. Mm-hmm. So. Somehow or another, you found your way into Jimmy Martin's band, so you must have progressed quite a bit after those initial days of learning. Well, I hope so, and that's a long story, but I had met Sam Bush and Wayne Stewart while I was still in college. Sam was 16 years old, and I was 20 by then, Okay, and uh, we had this idea of getting a band together. Uh, called Poor Richard's Almanac. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated from college, I moved to actually Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is where Wayne Stewart lived. Okay. And uh, and we tried to f- get a few gigs here and there, and without going into it, we went out to Oregon and played a gig out there. But then I almost immediately got drafted, so I had to leave and uh, went back to Oklahoma. It was turned down by the draft, thank you, And uh, yeah. in 1969. And uh, then recorded with, a, here we are again, you know, just uh, there was a guy there named Harlow Wilcox who played guitar and really sort of primitive, low-level, sort of Dwayne Eddy-ish mm-hmm. kinds of things. And he had had a hit, uh, believe it or not, with a tune called Moose Trot and, okay. and won a BMI award. And so they needed an album to go with it. So... I got a call to come down and play banjo on this seemingly, they said, oh, it's, it's a great bluegrass tune. Well, it wasn't at all, you know, but I played something on, the, on this tune, and it was called Moose Trot. So it became the B-side of this. Of the big hit. Of the big hit. And uh, when they put it out uh, as a single. So what? Where am I now? So, oh, they were going to go to Nashville to try to promote Harlow Wilcox. Okay. Wanted me to go along and said, would you like to go along? Sure. I called up Wayne Stewart and they drove down from Kentucky. Sam and Wayne drove down and we met at the time it was in the Noel N-O-E-L hotel which was just up the hill from the Grand Ole Opry house and I'm going to say it's Tut Taylor but I don't know who did it but somebody rented like the third floor and 
of the uh, Noel? Yeah, of the Noel Hotel. And this is during what's called, the, at the time, the DJ convention, where the DJs and the artists would get together. But as it turns out, a lot of fans were rolled in then too. Well, the bluegrassers of that bunch would get together at the Noah Hotel. And uh, it was there that I met, or I didn't meet him, I knew uh, Al Osteen, who died just a couple years ago. And Al was playing banjo with Jim and Jesse, and I had met him at Bill Monroe's first bluegrass festival, or second, I can't remember. And he said, you know, I'm playing with Jim and Jesse, and the banjo player for Jimmy Martin is leaving, and Jimmy's going to come up here after a while. I'll introduce you, and uh, you can try out. And, I, you know, back then, if you wanted to be a banjo player in bluegrass, for me in Oklahoma, the only, as I looked out, you know, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, they don't hire banjo players. Yeah, that job's taken. Yeah, the Osborne brothers, nope. <laughs> right. Reno and Smiley, nope. But Bill Stanley Mon- brothers, nope. nope. Yeah. But Bill Monroe hires banjo players. Jim and Jesse hires banjo players. And Jimmy Martin hires banjo players. Okay. And Jimmy was looking for a banjo player. So uh, Al introduced me. Uh, I spoke with him. And uh, Doyle Lawson was in his band at that moment. And I had met Doyle when I was... That little brief period I was in Kentucky, Wayne and I went up to hear J.D. Crow at, in uh, Lexington play at the Holiday Inn, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a famous moment in bluegrass. Yeah. Uh, and with Red Allen on the guitar. And they were really, I mean, it was fantastic. But anyway, I had met Doyle there, and Doyle was in Jimmy's band. And if Jimmy didn't hire a banjo player, Doyle was going to play banjo, and he didn't want to do that. <laughs> And he's a very good banjo player. Yeah, and, I believe it. And and actually played banjo with Jimmy some years before this. So he didn't want to do it. So he helped me and he talked to Jimmy and said, hire him and I'll work with him. So Doyle and I, I got the job, lived with Doyle. Hey folks, just need to take a quick break to tell you all about my good friends up in Lansing, Michigan at Elderly Instruments. Now you might be thinking that with Elderly's amazing selection and their fast worldwide shipping that they are some big box conglomerate store, but no, Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and they pride themselves on giving you the customer service and personal touch that only a mom and pop store can give you. So the next time you need anything for your banjo, guitar, violin, mandolin, any stringed instruments, accessories, instructional materials, and I'm talking about whether you're looking for a beginner instrument or even a high-end, vintage, hard-to-find item, Elderly's going to have you covered. It's my first place that I go. So check them out at elderly.com, and don't forget to let them know that the Piggy Fingers Banjo Podcast sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, a site that brings you streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other roots music styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in the world. Now, some of what Peghead Nation offers is a great lineup, of course, of banjo instruction. Check out these courses. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, regardless of what course you choose, you're going to get high-quality multi-angle video lessons, 
downloadable notation and tab, play along tracks, and plenty of tunes to play. Now, perhaps the best part of all this is that just by being a Picky Fingers podcast listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, all lowercase, all one word, over at pegheadnation.com. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to welcome a brand new sponsor, Sullivan Banjos. The Sullivan family has been in the banjo making business for decades and have earned their reputation for the highest quality in materials and craftsmanship. Perhaps the best part is you get the big time Sullivan tone while getting the personal customer service of a small boutique banjo custom shop. Chances are that if you can dream it, Eric Sullivan can build it. My main banjo is proof. I've been playing and loving my Sullivan custom banjo since 2004, and it just keeps getting better and better every day. So hop online and go to sullivanbanjos.com, email them at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com, or get a hold of them the old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone and dial 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell them that Keith from the Picky Fingers podcast sent you. Did you have to actually audition, or did Doyle no, no, kind of just took it up? Oh, yeah, I definitely did. I, just up at the Knoll Hotel, I played uh, Cumberland Gap, maybe, I think. And Jimmy is real way, way into the music, and he immediately started coaching me on how to play it, you know, and said, no, do this, don't do that, do this. At this point, do this, you know. And so he had a really definite idea of what he wanted his banjo players to do. And some of those things were somewhat not what banjo players would want to do normally. Yeah, like what? Well, for instance, on Cumberland Gap, and I'm not warmed up, so I can't really play it. Well, it sure. ends there. Well, he wanted it. You know, so he really dissects it down oh, to every oh, note. Yeah, yeah. He wanted, he said, no end on that note because it's, in with my guitar, okay. you know, and some other things he had, not at that moment, but just in the length of time I was with him, he had some notes were quick and some notes were lazy. And these right here, those are quick. But this, that's lazy. I'm not doing it well right now. You know, you made that last as long as you could. Yeah. So it, and you hear, and even to this day, you hear banjo players, and they just sort of flip it. You know, I can't even make myself do it, but it's just like, it's it's like it's a nothing. But it's, in Jimmy's thing, it's really important. And a lot of his view, musical view, came from the fiddle, and especially Chubby Wise, because he really loved Chubby's playing, and it was sort of a bluesy kind of slide, and mm -hmm. then just arrive at the note almost like at the last moment, and then... Just uh, in time. Yeah, and so he liked that sort of thing. So he had sort of these quick things and and lazy things. And then the other thing I remember is uh, on a kickoff to a song, I would do this. And he'd go, no, the timing's not right, so I'd do it again. 
because our timing's not right. And I would always look at my left hand or my right hand thinking, you know, it's the roll or the picking or something. Yeah. But, and I didn't discover this till after I left, it's, you know, when you play and you're playing all of these notes, the only thing you have to uh, articulate them is your left hand, Mm -hmm. you know, because your right hand is just doing this steady stream of notes. Mm -hmm. So if I did this... That's just leaving my finger down. Mm-hmm. But if I do this. You know, when you make them short, yep. you can make some of them short, some of them long, and the roll stays the same. Yeah. So instead of this, which is just all finger pressure the whole time, if you do this. Like and that's that, what he was talking about. I think the, ultimately. The duration of notes. Yes, yes. The, and there's a clip. On you see on YouTube somewhere where he's coaching a fiddle player to play uh, to play Fire on the Mountain, and he's going no no make that quick make that quick, you know no that's too long that's too long, and I think that's the kind of thing he's talking about is just you know and even in Cripple Creek you know uh, Earl Scruggs did this you know it's really long yeah, but his if you listen to JD play. Took his time getting there. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was quick and long, you know, so he had a real sense of that particular aspect of it. Were you ever able to predict, say, for a new song that you were rehearsing, which aspects of it he wanted quick and which he wanted Uh, long? Or was that just a constant struggle? It was was a constant struggle then because I really didn't pick up on what he was getting at, you know, and... uh, it was only after I left that I kind of went, oh, well, that's kind of what he's talking about, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really does make a difference. And, you know, Bill Keith, who's taught at this Midwest banjo camp several times, yeah. uh, he had a, he is the one that actually was the first one to write out all those Earl Scruggs solos yeah. that ultimately became the first edition of the Earl Scruggs book. And he had taken all that material and went to wherever Scruggs was playing and showed it to him. And, well, Earl didn't know what any of that was, so Bill would play it for him. And the one thing he mentioned, and there may have been others, but in Sally Gooden, right there, Mm -hmm. right here, that's the chord you're holding. Yeah, basically an E minor. minor, Right. And banjo players kind of think of it as a triangle-shaped E minor. Oh, well, Earl said, and as I'm looking at it, it's this note, the E note on the third string Mm -hmm. is played here with the second finger. And Earl said, don't, he said, lift that finger up because if you leave it down, it sounds like E minor. Mm -hmm. So he wanted. Wow. Yeah. And most of us would not even. Yeah, most have heard or or be aware of the difference. Right here, it is all just put. Leave your finger down. But he wanted, you know, and what it is, it's like uh, an articulation. It's like your tongue cutting off a sound to make a sound short, or your lips, or whatever you do to make a sound short. So uh, it's that ability to make 
within the context of this ongoing flow of roles to make some notes short and some notes long. And in fact, some notes, when they're shorter, it's sort of counterintuitive, is when they're shorter, they're more noticeable. Right. Yeah, they draw attention to themselves yeah. if yeah, they, they don't just peter they, out. Right. They sort of <laughs> just pop up, you yep. know. And uh, so it's learning to control your fingers and have us, you know, that goes in with this idea of playing the melody. If you articulate the notes of the melody uh, that are fingered, you know, that you have to fret, you know, it helps the melody stand out a little bit more than if it were just sort of laying in the same level as all the other notes. Mm -hmm. Now, from what I've heard of your playing with Jimmy, you didn't do much of the melodic style with none, him. None. Absolutely none. None. Okay. He, he didn't particularly. He admired it as a, you know, an accomplishment, but he didn't want it. It wasn't his music no, to, no. to do that. No. Okay. And because he would brag on, you know, Bill Keith, you know, uh, how good a player he was, but he he didn't want it that in his uh, music. And as a matter of fact, at one place I remember, you know, he says, well, my banjo player can do it. Okay, you know, oh, and, and, talking about you? Yeah, okay. and said, play something. So I played a little bit of uh, Sailor's Hornpipe, which uh -huh. is a Bill Keith presentation. And he says, now he can do it, but he doesn't want to. Well, <laughs> what he meant was he didn't want me to do it. And, yeah, and... Uh, you don't want to if you want to keep your job. Right. Is what but he would like, you know, he liked melodic things and in a sense, but done differently, you know, more like guitar. And, you know, the famous uh, bit on Hold What You Got. Right. That was J.D. playing that, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But it's all picked sort of guitarish. Yeah. Rather than. More what we would call like a single string style these days. That yeah. would be sort of a melodic version where all the notes are kind of ring out, yep. where he likes them. If you pick individual notes, he likes them to kind of stand out and, and be short. More of a Reno-y exactly. kind of sound. But really, really clean and clear with a really good tone and no fumble fingers, you know. Sure. Nothing uh, extraneous or out of the way as much as you could because when we recorded, it was all live. Everything we did was live. Yeah. And uh, so, and I recorded, I think, maybe 12 or 13 titles with him, and every one of them was done live. You know, I'd, sta wow. yeah. I'd stand there, and the group would stand, you know, not far from me around one microphone if they were going to sing. And uh, you just set up in somewhat of an as natural a setting as you could to where you could hear each other. No headphones. Yep. No, nothing. You know, just okay. Just go for it. Yeah, go for it. And that's the way all that music was done. You know, and it's you come up with a different sensibility than you do with you know trying to. Well, I got that, but I'd like to you know punch. What we used to call punch in. Sure. Uh, you know, here could we export from another part? Uh, you Mix know, and match. It, yeah. To a click track. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And none of that. Uh, none of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's uh, good things about it all. Yeah. And, uh, but you come out with a different sensibility and you watch those old country music shows that are all done live. And, you know, I think they have this thing about, you know, let's play as best we can, but we need to get through it. 
You know, so if there's something in there that you having trouble doing, you need to can't re- take too many risks. It. Yes, yeah. yes. That's uh, not the time to go out on the limb. Right. And I recorded uh, one of my favorite recordings that I ever did is with Bobby Hicks. I did a uh, it's called Texas Crap Shooter, and uh, they had told me what tunes he was going to record, and one of them is this Snowflake Reel or Snowflake Breakdown, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and it's sort of a fiddle tune, and I worked it out in sort of a fiddle tune-ish way. And we got to the studio and to record it, and it was so fast. A lot faster than you had uh, anticipated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just could not get through it. Oh, and no. his response was, we'll do it just plain vanilla. You know, just play some chords and rolls and, yeah. and get through it. So I did that on a little bit of it, but then I got some other stuff in there. So it came, it, but it, as a result, it came out well, and it was successful, and we recorded all that stuff pretty much live. What I liked about it was his fiddle playing, certainly, but was the rhythm section was Roland White on guitar, Sam Bush on mandolin, and Junior Husky on bass, and it was just this powerhouse. Uh, yeah, it's quite a section. Yeah. Oh man, it was. You just, you know, the cool thing about playing with really good players like that is that there's no place else to be but with them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so amazing it, how effortless that can uh, seem. Yeah. And it's, I always liken it to riding your bicycle with the wind. Yes, you know, it's exactly. Just, it's just, man, if bicycle riding were like this, I would, you could ride up mountains and all the way across the country if yeah. you had the wind at your back. With, with some groups, even from day to day, it seems like you can't play in time to save your life. And then other times with a strong section like that, almost anything you could do. Uh, you can't help but play in time. Right, um, right. When they're that strong. You know, I've had the occasion of... Uh, setting in with other groups that and it wound up being recorded and released and one was the Kentucky Colonels with Roland and Clarence and his brother their brother Eric on bass and then another time was with uh they were called Country Store at the time but it was Jimmy Goodrow, Keith Whitley and Bill Rawlings uh and it was released and in each case, they were so strong and so good that it was just, man, just jump in and, and don't let go, whatever right. you do. What a difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Very fun. And, you know, you get involved in jam sessions that feel real good, and, you know, it's like that. And then others, it's just not right. Just not happening for some reason. Yeah. yeah. And Jimmy told me, he says, you know, if you can play with me, you won't be able to play with anybody else. Was he right about that? He was, you know, because once again, his, and I'm not saying he was ever out of time, but he had spaces in there that seemed like that took up a long time. And sometimes... With, with his guitar rhythm or with his singing or what? Uh, uh, with what all of it, with just his whole sensibility. For instance, you know, just that much that he would do, you know, it could be really, it seemed like really long so that when you and what you did, you know, you would do if we were on, start on a D chord, go to G, 
you would do that lick. Yeah. And it had to be just right or it wouldn't come out in time with his guitar thing. Okay. So I would go out to jam sessions and people would just, you know, it was like they were, they did that and were gone. And I'm still back here trying to <laughs> finish your lick, finish my lick. And I'm, and it, it's, it did make it uh, difficult, you know, to go out and play with people because right away you see what they do a lot of is rush. You know, they rush through the licks. You know, rather than, you know, if you play well and get it all going, everything is spaced out just right. It's already spaced out, and you don't need to rush anything to get it in, you know, or slow down to get it in. Either way, it's... it's so was your feeling that Jimmy was doing it right and everybody else uh, well, was had, rushing, <laughs> or was it that Jimmy had it screwed up, but he knew how he wanted it. And... Uh, I think it's a little of both. And, you know, I mentioned that to Sonny Osborne one time, and he said, I always thought he, dra he, was, he dragged, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's probably what he's talking about is when he would get to certain licks more live than when we were recording, he was a little more attentive and a little more less in charge recording than he was live. Okay. Because he was in, you know, he loved being in charge. And, uh, you know, he's, he just liked, you know, and he would do some things live that I think he did just to show us that he was in charge. You know, things would be going well, and then all of a sudden it was like the bottom would drop out. And it was because he thought it was going too fast, you know, and it would just drag. Yeah. You know, so a lot of it, you know, just his sort of controlling nature. Kind of a power power yeah, move. Yeah, but uh, when he was on and really, I believed him, I believed him and wanted to be a good banjo player for him mm -hmm. and did my best, as they all did. They all, everybody I ever knew that played with him definitely tried to do it. So going to your instrument here, you've long been associated with stelling banjos. At what point did you discover those or develop a relationship with with Stelling and what do you like about those instruments? Well, interestingly enough, back going again, uh, 1969 when I moved to Nashville, almost one of the first people I met was Jeff Stelling. Okay. And he was in going to Vanderbilt. Uh, he was in the Navy and they were sending him to school to be uh, an engineer, I'll say. And uh, I would hang out at his house, and he loved bluegrass, and he loved banjos, and played a little bit, and he he would work on inexpensive Gretsch banjo, and he would work on it, and I think he built a banjo once, almost totally from the instructions in the Earl Scruggs book. That had banjo building instructions. I, I forgot that. Yeah, in the back of the book, okay. you know, and where on earth would you read about <laughs> building a banjo uh, at that time. So uh, he got into it there. And then uh, he, I left Nashville and went to L.A. and did the Country Gazette thing. And he, in the meantime, got stationed in San Diego. So I was up in L.A. in the early 70s playing with Country Gazette. He was in the Navy in San Diego and got out of the Navy with the idea of building banjos. It come up with this idea and where he got it from. And it's the idea of how you set the tone ring on the rim. Yeah. And on the Gibsons, if you can see me out there, I'm holding my hand straight up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the sides of the 
of the rim are straight and, and it's flat on the top. And so their tone ring has to sit, if it's a good fit, it has to fit on one, two, three different surfaces. Actually, you know, it's, yeah, three different surfaces. And if any one of them are off a little bit, it's not a real good fit. So he came up with this idea uh, of just fitting it on a beveled yeah, rim. Yeah, it's, it's what he calls the, the wedge fit. Wedge fit. Yeah. And where he got that idea is, is that's how propellers are mounted on shafts. And that's something he had learned in the, in the, in Navy. the military. Yeah. yeah, because he had been a mechanic also. Interesting. And so on that, you just put it on. It's not like a, a cylinder and then the propeller fits onto that. It's... It's beveled so that when you tighten it down, it pushes it down along this slope. It has you no know, choice but to be fit. a firm fit exactly. everywhere. Yeah. And so that's what, what his system is. So his tone ring and his rim go together. Yeah. And you can't change, inter, they're not interchangeable with Gibson's. Right. Uh, so that was one of his innovations, you know, and the design of it and the, uh, is all just the artistic part of it. Uh, but he called me and said he was making this banjo. I'd be interested in me looking at it. So I did, and I liked it, and I played it. And uh, for me, it was easier to hear. It was, and I'll use the term responsive. I had, and I never really owned, you know, a for real Gibson banjo. Mm -hmm. it was everything I ever owned was piece of this and a piece of that. And uh, the one I had at the time, it was a good banjo, uh, but this was, you didn't have to play it quite as hard, and it was a, a little clearer up the neck than the Gibson, and, you know, just lots of things about it. I like the neck he made was, at that time, was a little wider and a little flatter, and it just seemed more playable to me at the time. And so did you get one of his first ones that he made? Is that when he, or did he already have a, a business going by the time you, you Actually, he had made... If I said five or six by that point, okay. and I maybe had seven, or I'd have to ask him. Pretty uh, early on, yeah, though. It was, yeah, it was very early. And he was still working on the design and different things. But he liked, he had the, the instrument he had at that time he called the staghorn. Yeah. And that's what I began playing on. And it became sort of the uh, flagship banjo of his uh, catalog. And uh, I still have one and play it. But I had an accident. Or I didn't have the accident. The airlines did and uh, broke off the headstock. Oh, no. I mean, phew, that's a whole long story. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I called him and asked him, I said, have you got just a production model that if, I, if it breaks, you can go over to the shelf and send me another one just like it? And he said, yeah, I'm doing this new thing called a Crusader, and it has a little different design on the headstock, and maybe the the scale length is a little bit longer, and it's also mahogany, which many of his others, I think he said it's the first production model that's a mahogany banjo. Right. And uh, so he sent me one, and I liked it, so it's what I play, and it's what I've recorded with the last, you know, 15 years or so. And you're still happy with the sound of those? You still hear the same type of responsiveness that you that attracted you to them? In the, oh yeah, in the yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, they're. I love it. You know, and uh, a lot of people think they're too bright. Uh, 
but then they'll always say, you know, you're the only one. What do you do to your banjo? You're the only one that, you know, makes a stelling sound, you know, this certain way that they may like and not so bright. And, and uh, you know, I say I hardly do anything to them. I'm, I'm really the minimal banjo setup guy. And yeah. I changed the strings before I came, and I really groused about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can not much. It's... Yeah, I just changing strings is, and my banjo's pretty filthy. And you know, where people will take them apart and clean them up, and and they'll try. If, uh, I have friends that uh, change strings two or three times a day, trying to decide. You know, they'll have different sets, and they'll try them out. And, wow! And I just who's got time for that? Well, they do, and and I, and I understand it. They're professional players, and they're interested in it and want to know things. So I don't, uh, you know, fault them for doing it at all. Uh, it's just not something I can do. I just get it to where I like it, and I try to play it as best I can. Um, g- going back to your playing style, you mentioned that you had worked up arrangements of Bobby Hicks's version of the Snowflake Reel and everything. That's something I noticed about your playing, too, is how you come up with a lot of variations on those fiddle tunes. Did you have a specific approach to, say, sitting down with, you mentioned Sally Gooden, right. and you would, you would play it three or four passes, and each time would be, a you would extrapolate yeah. a little bit more melodically. Yeah, because that's what the fiddle players do. And I'm from Oklahoma, as I said, so and Oklahoma and Texas, uh, it's sort of called Texas Contest Fiddling, but Oklahoma was very strong in that, too. A lot of players came from Oklahoma. And uh, they, that was sort of, it's a real vibrant, alive fiddle tradition that is very progressive. Uh, not progressive in the sense of, you know, contemporary music, but progressive within its boundaries. Yeah, They, they never give up on trying to come up with a little Finding twist. the next or, thing. Yeah, yeah, because... For them, the contest, you know, and they'll go play against other fiddle players, and they have judges. And so there's a big one at Hallettsville. Uh, it's called the state championship, and I go to it sometimes when I'm around. It happens in April, and I love it. I love it. I love it. It's just real cool. It's all these really, really, really great fiddle players get together and sort of knock their heads together, and they'll they get down. You know, it starts out with 50 in the open competition. There might be 50. They whittle yeah. it down to 15, down to 10, and then down to the top three. And it gets down to the top three, and one of them will get up there and play Dusty Miller. Well, the next guy will come up and play Dusty Miller because he <laughs> thinks he's got a better one. You know, and it's, so yeah. it's really cool. Like a friendly, competitive uh, kind of thing, or maybe not so friendly. Uh, no, it, it's much more friendly today than it was with, the, you know, sort of the first generation of those players, they were very, very competitive and very many of them were guarded of what they did. And uh, the sort of the grandfathers of that style are Benny Thomason, and then there was a Major Franklin. And Major Franklin was a very, very crusty old guy. And if, as he was warming up, if anybody had a tape recorder, he would stop playing and tell wow. them to turn it off. Okay where Benny was very, very giving and would show anybody anything. And as a result, there are all these tapes of Benny Thomason, and there's hardly anything of Major Franklin. So, mm-hmm. you know, he sort of lost out in the big picture. Right. But that was the way they were, and they were 
some of my favorite lines. There was a player from uh, Oklahoma named Ace Sewell, and his dad was Gene Sewell, and he played in the old time. He he was in his 70s or 80s, but Ace played at a little contest somewhere in one-third. They had him up on stage, and they'd each come up and say a little thing, and Ace went up to the microphone, and he says, you got a mighty fine little town here, but I ain't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah, and then Dick Barrett, who was another. That's after he had after, won his third place. Oh, only you wouldn't third, say that before. Only third. Okay. Only third. And Dick Barrett's line, which I love, is I asked Dick, how'd you do in such and such a contest? And he said, well, I won it, but they only gave me third. <laughs> yeah. So they were, and they were pretty, you know, I think they admired each other, but there was always this edge yep. to them. But nowadays it's much much friendlier and it's very very nice and there's a lot of younger people in it mm-hmm. that don't know anything about you know the crustiness of it or the prickliness of those early players or they just hear rumors of it but they're all very very nice yeah you know and incredibly talented and a marvel to see and there's a lot of young women in it there's a lady in uh, Texas whose name escapes me right now who has a school that teaches i mean she must have I've heard she's had like 200 students, Wow! you know, and they're all, well, not all, but many, many of them are young players who learn to play in schools and now they want something to do additionally. And she's turned out just incredible uh, Texas style fiddle players. Very, really, really good. Yeah. So it's a real, as I say, very vibrant, progressive living tradition. But that's, but that's where you got your ideas from is hearing those people weave their variations on these fiddle tunes. Oh, definitely, and definitely. And you know the story on Sally Gooden with uh, Eck Robertson, who uh, was the first country artist to have a re- recording released. Hmm. Uh, he and a friend whose name escapes me went to a Confederate veterans reunion in Richmond, Virginia, back in the 20s, and read in a newspaper or got word somehow that they were recording, you know, I'll call them folk artists in, in New York City. So they went up to New York City in their Confederate outfits. Wow, okay, and walked like in, straight from there. Yeah, and went up there and said, well, we're here, you know, we want to record. So they recorded them. And among those recordings is Sally Gooden, just okay. uh, Eck Robertson playing it all by himself. And it's a brilliant recording. tell the story that says, you know, Sally Gooden had, uh, you know, I can't remember the number, 11, 13 boyfriends, and there's a a variation for each one of them. Oh, wow. He'd play this just, and you can hear them all, you know, and they're brilliant, and they're really cool, and that's sort of the genesis of that whole contest approach is that recording of Sally Gooden. Holy cow. Yeah, it's Interesting. Yeah, and he's from Texas. He came back. He lived in Amarillo and would be at fiddle contests all through the 60s. And, and uh, Benny Thomason picked up on all that. And, you know, they just, it was a, 
a friendly competition, you know, rather than drinking and beating up on each other. They'd just yeah. try to outfiddle each other, and and they would, you know, and I'd go to those contests, and sometimes there'd be a wad of fiddle players, and there'd only be one fiddle, you know, just uh, the happenstance of the moment, and somebody would be playing something, and they were all itching to get their hands on the fiddle. Trying to outdo each other. Yeah. Well, and say, well, here's how I do it. Mm-hmm. was what they would, is their thing. And the famous line of uh, Eck Robertson was, uh, he'd listen to a fiddle player play something and he'd go, now let me show you how that originally went. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you couldn't outdo them any way, shape, or form. You weren't going to prove them wrong, right. that's for sure. So anyway, you know, I picked up on that element of it and tried to come up with little different ways to do things on some of them, you know, the ones that I cared to put my time into. and Did you have an approach for putting so much drive in your melodic playing? That's definitely something that sticks out to me as well. Uh, you know, it wasn't planned out. I just tried to play what I thought sounded good, but I always played it in the context of a band, I thought, and it sounded good. So I tried to, you know, a lot of times on this melodic style, you don't have predetermined roles Right. You just have to kind of go for where the notes are. Go get them. Yeah. And sometimes it falls out into a pattern that seems familiar and other times not so. So I would just try to watch for those. And so that it all came out to me sort of in bluegrassy patterns. Now, I can't, it's not a, it's just a little bit of a forward roll and then a little bit of a backward and then a little alternating yeah. all in one measure possibly. But uh, I tried to have that sensibility about it and not approach it as a lot of individual notes. They w- were that, but within the context of what felt like a roll or some part of a roll to where it would hopefully survive. More recognizable. Yeah. yeah. Before we go... You've done a, a ton of teaching in your day. You you ran that uh, South, department at yeah. South Plains Community College. I've had a, a couple friends go down to you and learn some things. Oh, good, good. Um, uh, just to correct it, I didn't run it. I just taught there. There was okay. My boss ran it, but I was important to the bluegrass element of the sure, department. Right. So if you if you had to distill down to maybe one or two points that that tended to work for a lot of the bluegrass students. What are the things that you think are important for banjo players to work on? Well, you know, uh, if you're going to play in this style, you have to listen to the players that that really defined it a lot. And so I would always encourage students that I had made up a, at the time a cassette tape of 25, 30, it might have been 50 recordings that I thought were important to define the style yeah and they were all most of them were sort of medium to fast tempo the slow stuff is another aspect but mostly the role you know that involved the role and getting Mm -hmm. melodies into roles that is you know to me as i hear players play that is the kind of thing that i won't say is missing but is not as prominent as i think it should be which is being able to hear clearly the melody or an idea anyway yeah. of something rather than just the energy of the role and then some notes. And so to really work on that and to understand 
how the roles work and what roles can do. And they can't do everything. So yeah. sometimes you have to abandon a role and do something, uh, you know, another technique of some variety. But just understanding how the roles work and being able to have them work in your uh, favor, you know, is really valuable. And so that. And then the other thing is uh, just to do take small, very small steps and be good at them, you know, and then move mm -hmm. on. Not that you have to completely master something before you move on because it's playing is an accumulation. It's not, uh, I've done A, now I'm going to move on to B. Yes. And then on yes. to C, I've done B, I'm going to move on to C. It's sort of like, I've got as much of A as I can right now, so I'm going to move on to B. And, yeah. and then I get as much of B as I can and I move on to C. And then all of a sudden, well, look, A is coming along a lot better. Mm -hmm. You know, so it sort of accumulates over time. But just to take small things and try to perfect them. You know, and when I worked with Jimmy, that's one of the, you know, what he wanted, his personal life and, and in part his career were not done right. They didn't match the rest of the world in a particularly good way. But when he talked about the music and he how he wanted it, it was all, he wanted it to be done very professionally and so that everything was really clean and clear mm -hmm. and you didn't have to listen hard to figure out what's going on. And he would say, you know, if they can't hear what you played, you might as well have not played it. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, so if you're going to do something just real simple, you know, make it as good as you can, just that little moment. Mm -hmm. and And... Make it easy for people to like what you're doing. Don't right. make it too challenging. Right. And I always liken it back again to languages. If you speak real clearly, people understand what you're saying. But if you mumble, you know, it's, what did you say again? What was that? You know, and it's... It doesn't matter if it's the most profound idea yeah. anybody's ever had if, right. they, if they didn't hear it. Right. So, you know, just those things. Understand the style as much as you can and then try to perfect all the little details. You know, that detail of just how long you put your finger down on a note, mm -hmm. you know, is a little detail that you should practice and listen to yourself do. And uh, I encourage people to record themselves and listen back. It's a whole new world. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I always liken it to looking in the mirror too closely. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, is my nose really that big? You know, or... Uh, oh, Yeah. You see all the imperfections, but um, yeah, but you, if you don't see them, then you they're still going to be there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, I think you're going to drive hordes of banjo players crazy now that we're all going to be paying attention to exactly how long we're holding our fingers down on that D string. Once again, it's just you do it and then move on, and then but it comes back to you. Oh yeah, yeah, I should pay more attention to that. And after a while, a little bit at a time. You know if. The other thing is that's real important is, to, I think, if you're going to play a, a song that has words, that you know the words. Hmm. And you kind of sing along in your head uh, to, so that the banjo is a representation. What your solo is, if you want it to be, is a representation not only of the melody, but actually of the syllables, you know, to where if some syllables are short, you shorten them. And if they're long, you make them long. And also just 
to have syllabalized the lyrics to where, you know, they come, it comes out on your instrument that way. And then people won't say, oh, I can't tell what you're playing. You know, they oh, yeah, that's, you know, bury me beneath the willow or whatever. Or And it, it all comes back to where we started by singing on the instrument, just like Pete Seeger would have uh, definitely probably put in his book there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's what instruments are in a way, are just in some ways imitations of what people sing. Right. You know, so, so there. Well, hey, Alan, thank you so much for sharing all those stories with us. Sure. They were really interesting and fun to hear. And um, yeah, thanks for giving us your time and hope you have a great weekend, okay? I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. Thank I'll see you. you around. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in, folks. And thank you, of course, to Nathan Lazikas, today's Patreon supporter of the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. Email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Anybody who's heading over to Midwest Banjo Camp, come say hi, get a sticker, do a shake and howdy. Maybe we'll pick a tune. Uh, you know the drill. And... For all the rest of you, I will see you here next time.